Core of the Bible, podcast number 41, Following the Path, the Way of God. Welcome to the Core of the Bible podcast. My name is Steve, and I'll be your host as we explore the message of the Bible reduced to its simplest form. As you may know, it's my belief the core of the Bible consists of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. These central teachings incorporate seven main principles of conduct based on the topics of kingdom, integrity, vigilance, holiness, trust, forgiveness, and compassion. And today, we're going to be exploring the topic of trust using one of the most widely familiar passages of the Bible, and that's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in Yahweh with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct you on pleasant paths. Now the word for trust in this famous passage has shades of meaning which include confidence and boldness, running to a secure place for refuge, being free of care or worry, and having a steadfast hope. And all of these are different ways of representing the believer's inner reliance on Yahweh. So it's important to recognize that this is not an admonishment that we are to abandon all reason and understanding. We're simply not to have our own wisdom as the primary source of our planning and our actions. We must leave room for direction from God, maintaining a view to His kingdom and purpose in this life. The pulpit commentary says this, The Hebrew word signifies to lean upon or rest upon, just as a man rests upon a spear for support. Its metaphorical use, to repose confidence in, is derived from the practice of kings who were accustomed to appear in public leaning on their friends and ministers. So, for example, Naaman, a foreign commander, after being healed of leprosy, requested forgiveness of Elisha the prophet. This is in 2 Kings 5. It says, However, in a particular matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant when my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Ramon to bow and worship while he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow in the temple of Ramon. When I bow in the temple of Ramon, may Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter. Again, when Elisha pronounced a prophecy regarding the release of a siege famine from Samaria, the king's aid was in disbelief. It says, Elisha replied, Hear the word of Yahweh. This is what Yahweh says. About this time tomorrow at Samaria's gate, six quarts of fine flour will sell for half an ounce of silver, and twelve quarts of barley will sell for half an ounce of silver. Then the captain, the king's right-hand man, upon whose hand the king leaned, responded to the man of God, saying, Look, even if Yahweh were to make windows in heaven, could this really happen? Elisha announced, You will in fact see it with your own eyes but you won't eat any of it. So while that's a really cool story in itself, we can see that this practice since ancient times was to have the king supported by a close aide, one who provided physical, moral, and tactical support and advice. So while trusted counsel is not a bad thing, it is this type of worldly wisdom that is contrasted with trusting in, that is leaning on, Yahweh. The pulpit commentary says this, The admonition does not mean that we're not to use our own understanding, that is, to form plans with discretion and employ legitimate means in the pursuit of our ends, but that when we use it, we are to depend upon God and His directing and overruling providence. Paul, in his first epistle to the Corinthian congregation, writes this. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, 
so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit, because it's foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it, since it is evaluated spiritually. So there is a worldly type of wisdom that is helpful in worldly things. But if that is true, then there is also a spiritual type of wisdom that is helpful and in fact necessary in judging spiritual things. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, the language used here of trusting in God that he will direct you on pleasant paths can be likened to a traveler who's trekking through a wilderness in fog. He uses his natural wisdom and understanding to find the path that will take him where he needs to go. However, once he's on the path, he places his confidence in the path that it will carry him to his destination, even though because of the fog he can't see the full length of where the path is heading. But when he's following the path, he's carefree from having to choose his own potentially hazardous way through the wilderness. He, in fact, is leaning on that path. Our wisdom instructs us to find the path, and the path is that in which we place our trust since it has been provided by God. We have confidence that the path that God provided will lead us to the destination God has in store for us. God promises the path will be smooth and pleasant compared to the directionless wilderness ways of our own choosing. In the book of Job, it says this, Job says that wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are his. He makes nations great and then destroys them. He enlarges nations and then leads them away. He deprives the world's leaders of reason and makes them wander in a trackless wasteland. They grope around in darkness without light. He makes them stagger like a drunkard. So we can see that the trackless wasteland is a place where no one wants to be. There's no direction, no indication of the right way, and just sameness and harsh wilderness in each direction. Now, in a description of the biblical wilderness over at environmentsociety.org, they describe it in these terms. It says, The wilderness is a locale for intense experiences of stark need for food and water, such as the manna and the quail, of isolation, such as Elijah and the still small voice, of danger and divine deliverance, such as Hagar and Ishmael, Ishmael, and of renewal of encounters with God, like Moses, the burning bush, and the revelation of the divine name at Mount Sinai. There's a psychology as well as a geography of wilderness, a theology gained in the wilderness. The quote continues, Linguists will make the point that the Hebrews did not have an exact equivalent of the contemporary English word wilderness. Nevertheless, the Hebrews evidently knew the experience of confronting the wild. So we see the Bible is filled with imagery and examples of those who have wandered away from God. They've gone off the path that he's provided, and they're in the wilderness. Being off the path is straying from God and is an indication of not trusting in him with your whole heart. Here's some examples. In Psalm 119, it says, I wander like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commands. Proverbs 10, the one who follows instruction is on the path to life, but the one who rejects correction goes astray. Proverbs 12, a righteous person is careful in dealing with his neighbor, but the ways of the wicked lead them astray. Proverbs 14, don't those who plan evil go astray? But those who plan good find loyalty and faithfulness. Proverbs 21. The person who strays from the way of prudence will come to rest in the assembly of departed spirits. 
famous passage, Isaiah 53, 6. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. Jeremiah 50, verse 6. My people were lost sheep. Their shepherds led them astray, guiding them on the wrong way in the mountains. They wandered from mountain to hill, and they forgot their resting place. So you see, when one has gone astray, they have left the path to life in Proverbs 10, 17, or the way of prudence, Proverbs 21, 16. Jeremiah says those who wander have forgotten their resting place in Jeremiah 50, verse 6. As believers, unfortunately, it's not uncommon for us to go astray, to forget who we are, or where we're going, or where to find true rest within the will of God. We get caught up in our circumstances and distracted from our purpose. For non-believers, the picture is an even wider perspective where God is a distant or non-existent resource for guidance through life. But all of us need to know and understand God's ability to guide us where He would like us to go, which can only happen when we keep our eyes on Him and trust His direction with all of our heart. That this trust in God directs people in the way of life is a theme all through the Bible. This has been recognized by Jews throughout the centuries and is expressed in many different ways. One of the most popular examples of this is brought forward from the mid-1700s in Jewish literature. At that time, a respected rabbi by the name of Moshe Chaim Luzato wrote a book entitled The Derech Hashem, or The Way of God. In it, he details a spiritual perspective of life, God, and human responsibility from a deeply Jewish and mystical perspective. This book has become a Jewish classic, much like Pilgrim's Progress might be to the Christian faith. However, he was not the first to coin the term the way of God or the way as being the path of life. We can go to the teachings of Yeshua and find the same type of path of life imagery present. In Matthew 7, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, we have reviewed these verses in detail in a previous episode, but in summary, Yeshua is conveying that this narrow way to life is a cramped and difficult passageway surrounded by obstacles. It takes determination, effort, and persistence to find one's way through. Ellicott, in his commentary, writes this. He says, The meaning of the parable here lies on the surface. The way and the gate are alike the way of obedience and holiness, and the gate is to be reached not without pain and effort, but only through it can we enter into the city of God or the heavenly Jerusalem. A deeper significance is, however, suggested even by our Lord's own teaching. He himself is the way, in John fourteen six. Or, with a slight variation of this imagery, he is the door or the gate by which his sheep enter into the fold in John 10.7. Only we must remember that his being thus the way and the gate does not mean that we can find, in union with him, a substitute for holiness, but it indicates simply how we are to attain it. So to break this down a little further, let's look more closely at these other references that Yeshua makes to the way. In John 14, verses 4 through 6, he says, You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Yeshua told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. So interestingly, Yeshua didn't point Thomas and the disciples to an expected place like the temple or Jerusalem as a further place of learning, but claimed that he himself was the way. He specifically said that no one comes to the Father except through me. And this would be a hugely conceited statement were it not true. The exclusiveness of Yeshua's teaching is here revealed with no apology from the Master himself. Whatever this way is, it's represented solely by his life, his practice, and his teaching, all of which make up who he is. And this is why Yeshua is so central to Christian thought and practice, because he's placed himself there on purpose. The life of Messiah is one that is to be followed and imitated. This is how one stays in the way of God. In Yeshua's other reference to exclusiveness, he relates that he is the gate or the door to the sheep pen. John 10, verses 6 through 9, he says, Yeshua gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Yeshua said again, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. So in rapid-fire succession, the context of this passage reveals that Yeshua was likening his life and ministry to practices surrounding the tending and herding of sheep. On the one hand, he relates that he's the gate, or the single entry point, into the sheep pen. But on the other hand, he's also the good shepherd, the one who cares so deeply for his sheep that he's willing to lay his life down for them to protect them if necessary. Through these examples, Yeshua is conveying the supremacy of his own teaching over the thieves and robbers, that's the false teachers, who had come before him, as well as his unique position as being the only one qualified to effectively protect the sheep with his own life. That Yeshua was conveying the true way of God was a concept that was picked up by his disciples and considered a summary of distinguishing their belief in Messiah from the broader context of popular first century Judaism. The way or the way of God was an ancient title for the true spiritual understanding of the kingdom, mentioned several times in the book of Acts. For example, in Acts 18, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Yeshua, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. In Acts 19, it says, But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he, that is Paul, withdrew from them, taking the disciples, and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. And further on it says, After sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself, that's Paul, stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. So we find that this term, the way of God, or the way, was simply becoming shorthand for the teaching about Messiah and the kingdom of God. Paul even uses this terminology in his defense before Felix when he was accused of the Jewish leaders of leading a rebellion. In Acts 24, it says, But this I admit to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law or written in the prophets. 
Then it says, since Felix was well informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing, saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. So we see that the way was considered a sect within Judaism at the time, the way of worshiping the God of the Bible in truth according to all of Torah. Paul saw no conflict in this understanding and struggled to convey this overarching unity of purpose to his fellow countrymen, along with his detractors. In Acts 24, it says, Several days later, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Messiah Yeshua. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, Leave for now, but when I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. So we can see from this brief review that the way of God consisted of faith in Messiah Yeshua, the law and the prophets, righteousness and self-control as disciplines, and the warning of impending judgment on those who would not believe. And these are all aspects of Yeshua's life and teaching. Hence, he is the way. So coming full circle to our verse in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 today, we can see that leaning solely on our own understanding can lead us astray. But when we place our trust in Yahweh, we are thereby placing our faith in the law and the prophets, the practices of righteousness and self-control, and the teachings of Yeshua as his Messiah. The pleasant paths that Yahweh leads us on are considered the way of God, the message of the kingdom, and the hope of rest. Though the narrow way may be restricted and difficult, in the end, it's considered a pleasant path to the alternative of striving through the trackless waste of the wilderness without God. However, when we choose to acknowledge Him in all our ways, we demonstrate that we're trusting in Him with all of our heart, and He will lead us instead in that pleasant way, the way of the Messiah, the way of God. Well, once again, I hope I've been able to provide you some ideas and concepts to meditate on further. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, be sure to visit coreofthebible.org to join the conversation through comments or reading daily blog posts on these topics. The Core of the Bible is all about the message of the Bible reduced to its simplest form, that is, the principles of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. Do you have questions about today's topic or comments or insights you'd like to share? Perhaps you found this podcast helpful or encouraging. If so, I would love to hear from you and to include listener comments in future episodes. So feel free to email me at coreofthebible at gmail.com. Thanks for your interest in listening today. As always, I hope to be invited back into your headphones in another episode to come. Take care.